Let's hear the word of the living God as it is found in Proverbs and Philippians chapter 1, reading from verse 27 to 30. Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hears in me. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your matchless, infallible, inspired, and errant word. We thank you, Lord God, for the privilege we have of having your word in our own language. We pray, Lord God, still our hearts, that you may guide our thoughts. Lord, May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. We pray, Lord God, that we would be able to worship you acceptably in spirit and in truth. By the power of your Holy Spirit and by your grace, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct is key. Many people have a cheap grace and easy believism. Just believe, just pray this prayer, just raise your hand. It's easy to be a Christian. Well, that is not the way the Lord Jesus Christ preached. That is not the way the apostles preached. That is not what we see in the book of Acts or in the Gospels or in the epistles. Repentance involves conviction, contrition, and conversion. There needs to be a change of mind. We need to stop justifying our sin. Stop saying, I'm a good person. We need to stop excusing our mistakes. Call them what they are. Sins, wickedness, filthiness, abominations. There needs to be a change of attitude. That's what it means. Conviction, a change of mind, contrition, a change of heart, change of attitude. Confession, we actually need to admit to God and to others. And conversion, a change of life, a change of behavior, a change of conduct, a change of habits. Change is at the heart of the gospel. And so the apostle Paul says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see, or I'm absent and hear, that you stand fast with one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The words here are of conflict. In fact, that's in verse 30. Having the same conflict that you saw in me and now hears in me. Striving is another word for fighting. Conflict is involved. We are to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And this is hard. How do you win a war? How do you fight a war? There needs to be teamwork. There's got to be unity. There's got to be cooperation. 
We can see that our enemies are united. The enemies of Christ united to crucify him. There was not much in common between the Romans and the Herodians and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were not normally that united, but they cooperated together to crucify Christ. In Jerusalem, the enemies of Christ had little in common, but they did have this in common. They hated Christ. They saw him as an obstacle, inconvenient, some kind of problem. And they worked together when it came to the illegal trial, the shameful abuse, the torture, and the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our enemies know how to cooperate. There is power in unity, for good or ill. Muslims, radical jihadists, feminists, Marxists, socialists, New Agers, Greens, they seem to be able to work together sometimes for an anti-Christian agenda. Time and again, we see them cooperating for anti-Christian interests. What do the secular humanists have in common with the religious liberals? What do the LGBTQ plus at infinity transgender, gay, GB, pink inquisition, Muslim jihadists have in common? Well, they do hate Christ and they do hate Christ's people. But Christians are often divided. Divided on almost anything. Some Christians are not only divided, they are divisive and schismatic. Continually attacking one another. Some Christians have the gift of criticism and the ministry of discouragement. Even within the same denomination. I was quite amazed when I first came to America in 1988 to have people ask, they always want to label you. What denomination are you from? Baptist? What type of Baptist? What do you mean what type of Baptist? Well, apparently there's Many different types of Baptists, many different types of Presbyterians. It's quite complex. Are you premillennial, postmillennial, or millennial, panmillennial? Are you pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, pre-wrath rapture, post-wrath rapture? Where do you stand as far as the tribulation goes? Where do you stand when it comes to pedo-communion? Where do you stand when it comes to forms of government, tongues? There are many things that we can argue over. And in fact... Many Christians may not have anything like that to disagree on, but they will argue because of envy, jealousy, backbiting, gossip, misunderstandings, sometimes for no reason at all, except hearsay and gossip. I heard it said. Dr. James Kennedy once commented to me when I asked why he had not been to a Presbyterian Synod in quite a while. He said, we've exchanged one pope in Rome for 3,000 popes over here. And he mentioned these Presbyterian popes who have a ministry of litigation. Christians refuse to work with other Christians in spite of urgent necessity, even in the midst of some of the most important issues and when we might be at war, when lives are at stake. Think of the havoc caused during four years of U.S. President Jimmy Carter. I was not a Christian at the time. I was in a secular family in Rhodesia, but Jimmy Carter's name was a swear word in our family. His main priority seemed to be betray, betraying America's allies and aiding America's enemies. Thirteen countries fell to communism in just four years of Jimmy Carter, including my own country of Rhodesia, a 
trade in the hands of Mugabe. Mugabe's communist ZANU-PF are still in power 36 years later, thanks to Jimmy Carter's legacy. And the Shah of Iran was betrayed, one of America's best allies. Betrayed into the hands of the Ayatollah crazies, and that story has not completed its course yet. Nicaragua and others. We have not seen the end of the legacy of that apparently born-again Baptist from Georgia yet. Sometimes it seems that some people use Christianity as a thin veneer. Some friends of mine visited Jimmy Carter's Bible study, so-called, Sunday school in Georgia, and said there was nothing of the Bible and what they heard. What they saw was <laughs> secular humanism, New Age agenda. In our country, we have a cleric, Bishop Desmond Tutu, who uses a thin veneer of Christianity to justify secular, humanist, radical, LGBTQ abortion agenda. At our Mary Stopes Clinic, you have Planned Parenthood in America and Margaret Sanger. In the English world, we have Mary Stopes Clinics. They are like the Planned Parenthood of your country. Mary Stopes does most of the abortions in South Africa. In the Mary Stopes abortery, where we often have prayer vigils and demonstrations and outreaches and open-air preaching outside, they have a pull-up banner inside with Desmond Tutu in his archbishop's fancy dress, saying, God bless Mary Stopes Clinic for what you do for women. How about that? You have ministers, so-called, <laughs> praising God for baby-killing, child-sacrificing pagans. We've seen it with Islamic invasion Trojan horse seeking to invade and take over and Islamize Europe and your own country too if you let them. How divergent groups have almost nothing in common except the hatred for Christ will work together for an anti-Christian gender. Even feminists and homosexuals who are going to suffer tremendously at the hands of Sharia law, stoned to death, shot in the back of the head, hung, whatever, do they really want the burqa and amputations and all the different Sharia law implications? But they don't seem to look that far ahead or care. Their hatred for Christianity is so great that they will advance even their own suicide. And then you have liberals in Britain and much of Europe who would rather be raped or stabbed than called a racist. Insanity. We are involved in a war. We are seeing the anti-Christian agenda in your own country. Florists prosecuted. Bakers prosecuted. Bed and breakfast people in Ireland and Britain prosecuted. They've even tried it in our country for the homosexual agenda. Trying to get their so-called marriage, what God calls an abomination, performed by people who have the strictest standards of conscience to say we cannot do it. They're not in going to the baker down the road or the florist or the photographer over there who doesn't mind. No, they've got to choose out the Bible-believing evangelical Christian. Why is it that Christians cannot cooperate more and work together for the performance of the Great Commission? Why is it that you cannot even get the average Christian to cooperate with other churches in their own area, let alone churches and missions across the seas in another part of the world? There is something wrong. Many are failing to see the big picture. They're failing to be team players. Instead of unity in Christ, unity in the Bible, 
unity of purpose, unity in this world war of worldviews, unity in this cultural war, in this battle for the family, the battle for the mind, the battle for the heart. Instead of unity against those who are persecuting the Christian church and unity with Christians who are under persecution, we see those who are choosing isolationism or jealousy or envy, denominational division, empire building, majoring on minors, sabotaging the service of others. Many Christians think that's their primary goal in life is how to undermine the work of others, blow up bridges, destroy towers, and they're sure that they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant for all this schismatic backstabbing that they're engaged in for much of their energy and time. We saw this when Nelson Mandela became president in South Africa and started to move for the legalization of abortion, pornography, homosexuality, prostitution, gambling, abolishing our blue laws, Sabbath protection laws, getting shops and cinemas open on Sundays, and all the different paganization that came flooding in in the name of freedom. At a youth conference recently, Reverend Erlo Stegen has devoted his life, 60 years of missions, to the Zulus. We had at a huge youth conference. He has those twice a year, 7,000 young people, mostly black, mostly Zulu, Shona, Sutu, Kosa, pouring into this mission station, invited me to come and speak there. And to hear Ulla Stegan speaking so straight to these people, who he's dedicated his life to, he said, you know nothing about freedom. The freedom you have been given by the ANC is freedom to sin, freedom to go to hell and be damned and burn there forever. You have not been given freedom, you've been given oppression in the name of freedom. And he pleaded with him not to allow the so-called freedom to lead them away from God and lead them all the broad way to destruction. But Nelson Mandela's ANC was going even further. They were trying to shut down every single church meeting in any school classroom, any government building, any city hall, anything of which a government could have jurisdiction to forbid any Christian activity. And more than half of the churches in our country actually meet in school classrooms, in city halls, civic centers, and other kind of buildings which the government claims to have some title over. It would have shut down a lot. They were working on shutting down every Christian radio station, which was truly Christian. They want to say that if you've got a religious radio station, it's got to have all religions on, which, of course, no Christian could possibly agree to. And so I started trying to mobilize pastors whose very livelihoods and congregations were at stake, teachers, parents, and others, on a march to Parliament to protest against this. Our headquarters in Cape Town, which is where our legislative capital is. South Africa has three capitals. Our legislative capital is in Cape Town, where the Parliament is. A thousand miles away, we have our executive capital, where our union buildings are, where the president is. And our Supreme Court is in Bloemfontein, which is a thousand kilometers from where we are in Cape Town. So we've got this wonderful reformation principle of the separation of powers into three geographic localities, which is excellent. Humanists hate it. They love centralization. They've tried to move everything, but fortunately, the geographic realities have made it very hard for them to do so. And as I tried to mobilize churches to take a stand, we found divisiveness. We found arguing. 
we had six weeks of bickering before we could actually mobilize a number of congregations to march to Parliament. And week by week, we met in this church in Cape Town arguing, and I could not believe the petty small-mindedness of those who had made John Miners argue about trivialities, couldn't see the big picture, did not see we are about to be swamped and we will end up in jail and some of your churches will no longer be able to operate as a result of this. We've got to make a stand. We've got to work together. And for example, some good friends of ours decided to argue over the Constitution in our memo. We used the term that the South African Constitution began with for over a century in humble submission to Almighty God who controls the destiny of nations. That was the preamble to our constitution, and so we used this also in our call to the government to come back because they had already declared themselves a secular state, no mention of God, and so on. Well, there were those who wanted to argue that we need to say in the name of the triune God. Of course, we believe in the Trinity, obviously. We hold to Athanasian Creed and Nicene Creed, but in humble submission to Almighty God is already an established that was in our original constitution, and this could unite the broadest number of people, and there's no chance that the government was going to take that wording anyway. Why try to use a word that's not even used in the Bible? Nowhere in the Bible does God reveal himself as the triune God. He uses the term almighty God. It's the most common self-designation of God for himself. What is wrong with a biblical term? We had people storming out over this. Our freedoms were at stake. Well, praise God, at the end, we did manage to march 30,000 people to Parliament. We shut down the city. It's the largest protest Cape Town ever seen, and we created a tremendous amount of conflict for them. They had a few spanners thrown in the works. It did put Mandela's agenda back quite a lot. They were actually terrified. They thought that we were going to storm the Parliament and drag them out and do with them what they would have done to us. Uh, they didn't realize that we could mobilize so many people and not leave a piece of litter and break a window or cause any damage. Uh, they, in fact, uh, were literally terrified that the days had come to an end as the Christians poured outside Parliament and we sang the Psalms and prayed imprecative prayers over them. <laughs> but many Christians today are distracted. Many Christians today are disinformed. Many are victims of misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is a mistake. There's a lot of mistakes in newspapers, magazines. Mistakes happen all the time. Typographical errors, misspelling, and so on. Misinformation is accidental, but it's out there. Disinformation is deliberate. Every communist government has departments of disinformation. Agitprop, ag agitation propaganda divisions. Lenin said, we need agitation for the ignorant and uneducated masses, that's his words, and we need propaganda for the educated masses. So the educated elite get propaganda, and the uneducated masses get agitation over some issue. They don't care about the issue. The issue is not the issue. The issue is the revolution. And so they will whip people up, anything, men against women, young against old, rich against poor, black against white, they don't care about anyone. It doesn't matter. It's just the issue is to get the people to cause trouble so that you can have a revolution. Constructive chaos, it is called. And so 
we need to be aware that we are living in the greatest age of propaganda and indoctrination in history. Education today is more indoctrination. The news media is mostly disinformation. You cannot trust CNN, the Clinton News Network, BBC, the Bolshevik Broadcasting Corporation. You cannot trust Slime Magazine, Newspeak, Useless News and World Report, or any of these other disinformation centers and gulags for the New World Order. Because our people are misinformed, disinformed, uninformed, distracted, most Christians are disengaged, not involved in a fight, not involved in fighting the good fight of faith, not involved in a culture war, not involved in this world war of worldviews. Most Christians are singing their battle songs somewhere in their barracks, but they're not obeying their commanding officer and getting out into the field and using their weapons. They might sing about their weapons, but they're not using their weapons in this fight of faith. Now, our enemies today know the importance of unity, and they are working in some kind of unity. The European Union, praise God for Brexit, which has undermined the European Union's whole agenda. And now there's Nexit being planned, and there's Dexit and a whole lot of others. There's Denmark, Norway, uh, Norway's already out. Uh, in fact, they voted back in 94 to have nothing to do with the European Union, and their economy has soared. Uh, but Nexit from Netherlands, they're planning. There are a whole number of states in Europe, including Austria, have already had referendums saying we want a referendum to decide on leaving the European Union. And a lot of things are going on. There's more opposition in Europe than most people would ima imagine. Hungary, Poland, Czech, tremendous amounts of opposition. Slovakia. It looks like Eastern Europe is the most alert to the dangers of centralization, obviously. They have some experience. The African Union has gone over the edge of the cliff, praise God. It wasn't that long ago that Thabo Mbeki of South Africa, hardcore communist, and Gaddafi were both jostling for who was going to be the first president of the African Union. Well, they're both out of the picture, and we're grateful for that. In the scripture, we receive many commands for unity. Not the fake unity of the World Council of Churches, not the fake unity of Roman Catholic apostasy, but biblical unity as given in Philippians 1 verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're talking about standing fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We are not called to have unity with the world. Our Lord Jesus did not pray in the Garden of Gethsemane for, for the world. He said, I'm not praying for the world but for those you've given to me. They obey your word. The ones who believe, the ones who obey, I'm praying for them. The Lord made it clear in John 17, he's not praying for us to have unity with the world. That is not what we mean by unity. We're talking about biblical unity, Christian unity, unity in Christ, unity of purpose, unity in the Great Commission, unity with the persecuted church, unity in battle, unity in the fight of faith. That's a different unity from what the world is speaking about. Jesus prayed, John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We don't need to debate what the truth is. It's made crystal clear. We're talking about the scriptures. That is the basis of our truth, base of our unity, the word of God. John 17, 18, our Lord Jesus said, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. 
that they also may be sanctified by the truth. How are we sanctified? By the reading and the preaching and the teaching and the hearing and the receiving of the Word of God. The Word of God sanctifies us, cleanses us, renews our mind, not removes our mind, renews our mind, that we could be transformed, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our Lord says, John 17, verse 19, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world often scorns Christians for a lack of unity. Now, of course, we cannot be expected of unity with false prophets, false teachers, false shepherds. We are not meant to have unity with worldly apostate, so-called Christianity, which is not. But we should be having unity with real Bible-believing, born-again Christians, for sure. The Great Commission is our supreme ambition. The purpose of our unity is not for some New World Order, New Age agenda. No, we're not after the New World Order agenda. The purpose of Christian unity is the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeking first His kingdom, fulfilling the Great Commission. John 17, verse 22, And the glory which you gave me, I have gave, given them, Jesus said, that they may be one just as we are one. Can one imagine Christians being one as the Father and the Son and the Trinity are one? That's a sense of unity that is very hard to understand. I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The Lord is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of His crucifixion for His people to be united. Now, we're talking about unity amongst regenerate, faithful disciples. The Lord makes it clear He's not praying for unity with the world. He's praying for those who will believe in Him, those who will be faithful to His Word, those who have been sanctified by the Word of God, those who are students of the Bible, those who are regenerate, born again, names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It is a disgrace for Christians not to be united. It is rebellion to Almighty God for us not to be united with fellow believers. Now, I have found it easy to be united with Christians on a wide variety because I'm involved in missions. Not only in missions, but missions of the persecuted church. And somehow we find it a lot easier to identify true Christians, the ones who suffer for Christ and taking risks for Christ, and to be able to have fellowship and ministry across a wide denominational variety. It's natural for missions to the persecuted church to cooperate. We work together with Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs, Samaritan's Purse. We get together, we cooperate, we deliver things for one another, we give flights, lifts, deliver materials, cooperate, transport, accommodation. In the field, there's phenomenal cooperation. I mean, I remember times when we were literally at one time, one place, there were this missionaries from Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, Samaritan's Purse, Frontline Fellowship, all together around one table, making plans, working together, and we would be providing operation, transport, whatever, with one another. There's no problem with missions to persecute church. We could be in Romania, Lutherans, Orthodox, Baptists, working together, no problem, because 
These are people who have suffered for Christ. These are people risking their lives for Christ. And there's an immediate unity amongst the persecuted church. Richard Vaughan said, when you end up in the same prison cell and concentration camp or torture chamber, you'll recognize that Orthodox minister in the corner, he's also a brother in Christ. Now, you might know that when the communists took over Romania, Richard Vaughan who was a Lutheran pastor, was expected to go up on the platform and endorse communism. And there was this event, and the people were lined up, and one minister after another stood up and said, Christianity is communism in practice. This is what Jesus taught, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. In the book of Acts, we see communism in practice. We must support the Communist Party. They are putting in practice real Christianity. One after the other lied, distorted, apostatized up there. And Sabrina Wilmbrandt turned to Richard Wilmbrandt, her husband, and said, go up there and wipe the shame from the face of Christ. And Richard Wilmbrandt went up and he read from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does Christ have with Belial? Come out from among them and be you separate, says the Lord. Now, he went to jail, straight to jail. Do not pass, go. Do not collect $200. I mean, just. But he said, all the other ministers who had compromised, lied, and shown cowardice before the enemy, they ended up in the same prison cells just later. But the difference was, Richard Wormbrandt was there with a clear conscience. The others were there tortured by how much they had compromised before they finally ended up in prison. Richard Wormbrandt wrote a book called, If That Was Christ, Would You Give Him Your Blanket? That's the name of a book by Richard Wormbrandt. If that was Christ, would he give him your blanket? Now, he's referring to an Orthodox minister in the same cell, and he did give him his blanket because he recognized, whatever you do unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. We discovered a Bible college in Labongo in Angola during the war. Presbyterian, Assemblies of God, and Baptist Bible College. One Bible college run by Presbyterians, Baptists, and Assemblies of God. How is this possible? We asked them. And they responded, the war taught us to work together. Indeed, I'm sure it did. When the Cubans are burning down churches, burning Bibles, pointing AK-47s at people, compelling them to bow down in front of the AK-47, smearing blood of a lamb over their faces, telling them, you bow before this AK-47 or we will kill you. You spit on the Bible or we will kill you. Spit and you can go free. Don't spit and we'll kill you. You can imagine the conflict, the clear choice. Whoever seeks to save his own life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, for the Gospels, will save it for life eternal. And so, when you're dealing with communist terrorists, Marxists who are burning churches, Muslims who are murdering ministers and burning Bibles, it becomes clearer who the enemy is and who your brothers and sisters in Christ are. That's why I've been able to minister amongst Baptists, Lutherans, and Orthodox in Eastern Europe and amongst Pentecostals and African Dependents and Anglicans and brethren and Copts in Africa. It's natural because we are in a war. When you're in a war, it gives a different perspective. In the army, we were taught to work as a team. 
One of our exercises was the fuss bait, which is like bite the bullet, bite fast, the fuss bait. And that was an 8,4 kilometer race between companies and platoons where you were given drums, poles, wooden poles, and tires. Now, you couldn't just grab a tire and run. You didn't win by being the first to cross the finish line. It was the last member of the platoon to cross the finish line, the complete team. That's who won. And so we had to work as a team. No good just you carry a tire and you try and roll a drum and you try and carry a, drag a pole. No, we take turns. We, you take this end of the pole, I take that pole. Let's stick a few tires on it. Let's link our ropes, the other ones with a pole, with those, and carry the drums between, and then run in step. There had to be teamwork. And the, the weaker members needed to be helped. Stronger soldiers end up carrying the rifle and the backpack of some of the weaker ones. Sometimes we'd come one arm on this side, another arm on the other side, and be carrying someone who'd, who'd passed out or was about to, and lifting them off the ground and just running so that our platoon could cross the finish line before the other finish line, before the other platoons. It's a competition that taught teamwork. You didn't get it right the first time, you went around again. Another 8,4 kilometer fuss bait. And so we learned that you achieve far more in far less time as a team running in step with the stronger considering and helping the weaker. And you do not win by being a lone ranger, Rambo, running yourself, saying, I'm going to win. That's not how you win in a war. That's not how you win in the military. It's teamwork. And so we need to, and I might add a lot was carrying on it. It wasn't just who won. Who crossed the finish line first? That depends which platoon got the pass, the trophy, the benefits. There's all kinds of incentives to work together as a team. The competition in the military was to increase your competence. In the army, there's tremendous competitiveness. Every platoon was against the other platoon, every company against the other company, every regiment and unit against the others, and the Navy and the army, <laughs> deadly enemies. As, as for the Air Force, well, fights over all sorts of things. There's, the competition was severe, but why? It was for training to improve our effectiveness. Now, you want to increase your speed, you want to increase your competence, your skills, your teamwork. I mean, that makes sense. But when we went to the border, when we were deployed against a common enemy in the war in Angola, even the police and Air Force were considered to be on our side. They had different uniforms, strange rank structure, different way of saluting, all kinds of bizarre things. But they were on the same side. They were fighting the same enemy. And so we could work together. Your perspective changes. It is healthy to have competitiveness and training to strengthen your skills, to improve your abilities, to increase your speed, to perfect your teamwork. Yes, to see how you can work well together. But once your training is complete, to, be, to continue the competitiveness when you're deployed in an operational area against the enemy, that would be foolishness. Now we have to work as a team when we are fighting the enemy. And it doesn't matter whether they're Marines or Air Force, if they're allies, if they're on the same side, under the same flag, fighting the same enemy, we can cooperate, can we not? Christians need to have that same constructive attitude. When we understand who the real enemies are, Satan and his minions, radical Islam, 
secular humanism, Marxism, communism, the new world order. We would not be wasting our time fighting fellow believers, certainly not fellow evangelicals or reformed believers. God forbid that we should be fighting people who have the same basis of faith, who hold to Scripture alone as the ultimate authority. Salvation is by the grace of God alone, received by faith alone, on the basis of Christ's death on the cross alone. Christ alone is the head of the church. Everything should be done for the glory of God alone. If people can have these same foundational principles, if they hold to the Heidelberg Catechism, to the Westminster Confession, to the London Confession of Faith of 1689, if we can see this similar foundations, can we not find a way to work together and cooperate? We should not waste time fighting fellow believers. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. For though we are many, are of one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. For as one body is one, and as many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. And so 1 Corinthians repeatedly hammers this importance that your one hand isn't in competition with the other hand. Your one foot's not in competition with the other foot. We've got to work together. Don't want your eyes in competition. We want to have focus. We, you cannot achieve anything in sports or academics or in any area of life without the whole body working together. Engage brain before putting mouth in gear and so on. And we've got to work together. There's got to be coordination. We need to have our mind and our tongues connected. Coordinated. If we want to achieve anything important, we need to have coordination, cooperation. It's necessary in our body, it's necessary in the church, it's necessary in missions. Because we're, we need a revitalized vision. We need a renewed understanding of the foundational principles. Where we stand in the battlefield of beliefs, in this world war of worldviews, in this cultural war that is raging for the family, in this battle for the mind, this battle for the heart. We need to work more effectively together with other believers. As I travel, many people are surprised that our mission works with so many others who are not reformed. Why do we do that? We try to see the big picture. We have a vision of the Great Commission. Reformation, revival. We want to see the fulfillment of the Great Commission in our own generation. And as we seek to fight the good fight of faith, we are working with people whose knowledge of Scriptures is very deficient. Some people have very inadequate understandings of the Scriptures. Some have got terrible theology and even worse practice. But if we can teach them the Bible, if we can put good books and study Bibles in their hands, if we can get them to seminars, train them, get their people into our Great Commission course, if we can get them in touch with better teaching, put in their hands resources, then we are achieving something. We're wanting to get their focus on God's kingdom. We want them to understand the kingdom of God and His righteousness. A victory for one part of the body is a victory for the whole body. If you think in terms of military war, nobody wins a war on their own. Only in Hollywood does that happen. No, it takes teamwork. In 1 Samuel, we read of Jonathan seeing the need to do something about the Philistine threat. And he was bold. Jonathan was brave. And he said, let us go up and see if God will give victory over the heathen. Well, he can give victory whether by many or by few. 
And his armor bearer said, whatever the Lord has put into your heart, do it. I'm with you, heart and soul. And they went up, they engaged the enemy. And they initiated the victory, which the whole army was needed to succeed in winning the battle. Jonathan got the ball rolling. But the whole army was needed, ultimately, to win the victory against the Philistines. That is why David and Jonathan became the best of friends. They identified with each other as warriors, as fighters, as those willing to take risks, willing to take on the enemy, even when outnumbered. These two, Jonathan and David, are one of the most magnificent examples of a brotherhood, of a real friendship, of a friend who can stick even closer than a brother. They were united in God because they were united in battle. There is a unity that comes amongst military people that is pretty unique, which most people cannot understand. You have never lived until you have almost died. And for those who fight for it, life has a flavor the protected will never know. There is a bond between soldiers who have been in combat together, which is very hard to break. It's the same in a persecute, same in missions. When people have been under fire, when people have been in the trenches, when people have been in jail, when people have been in persecuted churches, when people have been behind enemy lines, ministering and risking their lives to worship Christ, to deliver Bibles, to serve the suffering church, or whatever the mission is, there is a bond that is very hard to break. Most Christians will never know that bond, as most Christians have never committed to the fight, not to the culture war, not to the battle for the family, not for the battle for the mind, not in this world war of worldviews. Most do not know what it is to engage the forces of darkness, to engage in spiritual warfare. Most people in churches have never written anything for God. How can they relate? My father fought six years in the Second World War in the 8th Army, Royal Artillery. My grandfather fought in the Africa Corps on the other side. And there was a bond between them. And those that fought with and those that fought against. It was incredible. The Desert Rats and the Africa Corps had reunions. Tremendous bond. My Old Testament professor at Baptist Theological College, Professor Fritz House, he was Africa Corps. He had a Bible study and prayer fellowship every night. Urban Rommel often attended his Bible study and prayer meeting. Professor House said there wasn't a day that went by without them having their Bible study and prayer meeting. And they had wonderful opportunities. In fact, the enemy that against American unit invited him as a guest speaker for their 40th or 50th anniversary in Texas, and he was embraced by those who had been his enemies. Because there is a bond in Christ and a bond amongst soldiers, even those who fought on other sides, that is very hard for people to understand. Now, you see, there's an excellent book that's out recently, one of the best Air Force books I've ever read, A Higher Call. Maybe some of you have come across it. A Higher Call is the story of Luftwaffe fighter ace Franz Steigler, an American bomber pilot, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown's B-17 was shot up, horribly damaged, huge amounts of the tail shot away. It's amazing this plane was even still flying, half his crew were either dead or dying, and this Luftwaffe fighter ace, Franz Steigler, came alongside and guided them out over the North Sea on the way back to England, over the 
flak gunners that would have almost certainly gotten them because they were so low, and saluted them and prayed that they would receive safety. And Charlie Brown was tormented by this event, and why did the man not shoot? What was the story? Why was he motivated? And years later they met, they shared notes, and Adam Marcos has put together a book from both their perspectives and tying in for many others that they interacted with a tremendous story of enemies who became brothers, and more than brothers, actually. One of the first Air Force books I ever read was The First and the Last by Adolf Garland, who became best friends with the British fighter ace Douglas Bader, the one who had his tin legs and actually had to unclip his legs to get out of his plane because they were mangled in, in the plane so he could parachute without legs down to safety. Adolf Garland, head of the fighter wing of Luftwaffe, organized for spare metal legs to be brought to him. They ended up being best of friends, family holidays together, writing forwards for one of his books. This is very hard for most people to understand. The bond that is formed in battle. Most of the attempts for Christian unity today will fail because most of those attempts are based on the shifting sands of emotion and on fuzzy, sentimental, sloppy, soft kind of sentiments, which is not going to bring about unity. Real unity are when the people of God understand, be thou my vision, when God is our vision, when the Great Commission is our vision, when God's kingdom is our vision, then we will be able to love our brethren. When our mission is God's, when the Great Commission is our supreme ambition, when we see ourselves not so much as a member of this congregation or denomination or country, but of the kingdom of God, involved in the battle, involved in the war, involved in the mission of making disciples of all nations, teaching obedience to all things the Lord has commanded, then when we are united with the persecuted church, then we'll be able to work together with Russian Orthodox, Egyptian Coptics, with Ethiopian Copts, with Anglicans in Sudan and Pentecostals in Nigeria, Baptists in the Congo and Independents in Zambia. When we're involved in the same mission, when we have experienced some of the threats, when we're facing the same channel, channels, challenges, then we will be able to experience Bible-based, Christ-centered unity, and we will be able to lift up those whose doctrines and knowledge is not as good because we recognize they are there in a fight. Let us come alongside them and help them and lead them deeper into the Scriptures, deeper, further, and higher. What we need to do is follow the biblical principles, Ephesians 4.13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the kind of unity which Apostle Paul is talking about, a unity of the faith, a unity of knowledge, a unity in Christ. Christ is our perfect example. And we are striving to develop and grow up into a stature. If we try to compare ourselves with fellow Christians, then there's room for both despair and pride. There's always people who know more than us. There's always people who know less than us. There's always people better than us, and there's always people worse than us. We're not to take our standards from other Christians. We're to look to Christ. Here's the standard. Then there's a lot of room for humility. We are to follow in Christ's footsteps. There is bad in the best of us. There is evil in the best of us because we have fallen. There's good in the worst of us because we've fallen creation. That's the balance, fallen creation. Depravity of man 
but the grace of God. And so we need to reject the false, but seek real unity in Christ. Unfortunately, so many of these biblical concepts of unity have been hijacked by the New World Order, the liberals, the World Council Church, and the apostates. So naturally, we have a resistance to unity, because often unity means compromise, which quite rightly we reject. We don't want that. But we must not be anti-biblical unity. We must be anti-false unity. Like some people are against faith-based films. Well, of course, most of those are fake-based, and that we don't want. But if it's genuinely biblical, Christ-centered, and God-honoring, then we want to support it. We need to distinguish between the true and the false, the counterfeit and the real. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace, as we read in Ephesians 4 3. In Philippians 4, verse 2, Paul says, I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul is calling for two people in the same congregation who had odds with one another. 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of peace and of love will be with you. Colossians 2, 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. An example of how we should not be united and not operate was at the Rustenburg Church Conference. In 1990, I was invited to be a delegate at this national conference of churches in South Africa, and we had all the apostates and evangelicals together, and... At one time, Ray McCauley, a faith-based preacher, one of these Word of Faith characters, uh, a follower of uh, Kenneth Pagan, and he stood up to do a devotion and said, brothers, it is time for us to lay aside doctrine and seek unity with our brothers in the Southern Council Churches. Now, this Ray McCauley used to be a bodybuilder and a bouncer in a nightclub, and I remember one time... Uh, he stripped off his shirt in a Sunday morning service to show his muscles to the congregation with people shrieking and so on. You know, that sort of character. You get the idea. I went up to him during tea time and said, Ray, I never knew you took up doctrine. How could you lay it aside? <laughs> he laughed, and he thought I was joking. But of course, I was serious. He had never taken up doctrine. How can we lay aside doctrine? We can only have unity in the correct doctrine. We need to be united in Christ, in the family of God, in our mission of the Great Commission. United in our love for God and for His creation. United in our purpose to be salt and light, working for reformation, praying for revival, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. United in battle, in the battle for the mind, the battle for the heart, battle for the family, battle for marriage, battle for the kingdom of God, for Christian civilization. Christian civilization is under relentless attack at this time, as we should well know. We are under serious threat. Christian civilization is really attacked. When has the church faced the kind of threats it's facing right now? From the insidious antichrist, gay GB, pink agenda characters who are seeking to bully, intimidate, and pulverize Christians into redefining the gospel, family, marriage, life itself. We have whole denominations, whole abominations that have run up the white flag, who have redefined marriage to include what God calls perversion, who have accepted unrepentant, fornicating, adulterous, perverts into the pulpit, 
and call them ministers and bishops, him or her, entire denominations are apostatizing right, left, and center. We're living in an age of apostasy. When people are evidently willing to ignore vast passages of Scripture. Why? They do not want to be called horrible names. Like bigot, judgmental, legalist. Oh, God forbid that we should be such a terrible name. And so, many Christians would rather betray God than be called a bigot. They would rather violate the ordination oath than be called judgmental. They would rather throw out the church constitution than be called a legalist. They would rather ignore the Bible, take the scissors to the Bible, delete vast sections of the Scripture, offensive passages, whatever is necessary, shred the Bible if necessary, but please do not call me a horrible name. Wimps, wets, and weeds. These spineless jellyfish, even jellyfish, filleted of spine, no doctrinal backbone, no Holy Spirit fire and fervor, no courage, cowards. And in Revelation 21, verse 8, we read that the first on the list of God's hit list, the first on the list of the eight categories of people he'll throw into hell are cowards. May God not find us cowards at this time when we need resolute courage. Churches are apostatizing and giving into New World Order agenda. Or they're just being quiet. Sometimes silence is golden, but other times it's just plain yellow. They have forgotten the whole purpose of what we are here for. Many have spiritual amnesia. which just say, we just want to focus on good, happy thoughts. Well, why don't they look at how Jesus preached and preach and pray like Jesus prayed? But no, they want to be more holy than Jesus, more loving than God. They've forgotten the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the time comes that we must stand, we must stand up boldly like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God whom we serve is able to save us, and he will. But even if he does not, we still will not bow before your idols, nor will we serve your gods. When the time comes for us to step out, let us step out in faith like the Apostle Paul. When the time comes for us to speak up, let us speak up boldly, and biblically, like Martin Luther, who could say before the emperor and the entire assembled political and ecclesiastical might of Rome, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. We must fight the good fight of faith. We must be bold, we must be brave, and we must be biblical. The last command of Christ should be our first concern. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Our priority on earth is to fulfill the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, teaching obedience to all things that the Lord has commanded, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered for the saints. Stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. May God find us faithful to His word and faithful to His work. Let us pray. Lord God, we want to thank and praise you for your love and mercy and for these great examples in church history. We pray, Lord God, that as the time of crisis comes to face us, may you prepare us so that we would not hesitate when a time comes for us to stand up, to step out, to speak up, to fight the good fight of faith. 
We commit one of them to your hands and pray, Lord God, that you would make us brave and bold for you. We pray it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.